we are going to begin this afternoon uh, with a pop quiz. All right, a pop quiz about the book of Joshua, and so no cheating. Uh, this is like if you have your uh, device, you know, your phone or whatever these days, and you get that black screen of death, that means it's just not working at all. This is the kids' black screen of death here. If they see this, they know we're fixing to study some questions, and uh, they get nervous. Uh, but we've got a pop quiz to start. Before we get into our lesson, uh, as we have mentioned and been saying, we have been studying the book of Joshua, and I think I might have done this last year or certainly uh, two years ago uh, before it was canceled. I guess that would have been 2020. Uh, we were leading up to it, and I had started Luke. We were covering Luke that year. I had a couple of lessons on Luke, and that was March, right around this time. Most of you remember around March the 8th or so that the world kind of shut down and, and stopped, and they had to cancel the convention that year. Uh, but we did a few of these lessons over Luke then, and so one of the things I'd like to do is uh, give you a few questions over Joshua. I've got about 10, hopefully a couple of them you'll know, uh, maybe a few that challenge you a little bit, a few you won't know unless you've been studying these, uh, and then we'll get kind of to the main part of our lesson if you have your outline in front of you. So, number one, uh, you don't have to answer out loud, by the way, or anything like that. It's just kind of to see what you know about Joshua. According to Joshua 1.1, who was Joshua's father? Moses, Nun, Jesse, or Achan? Of course, the folks that put these together do a great job. They challenge our kids. These are not made-up names. Besides the uh, correct answer, you'll see some that are familiar, uh, some that are even covered in this book. And, of course, the correct answer to Joshua 1.1 there is that he was the son of Nun. Now, moving forward in chapter 1, according to Joshua 1.8, what did God say should not depart from Joshua's mouth? Now, this is a trick question because we covered this this morning, so if you miss it, you're in trouble uh, with this one. Was it the Song of Moses, the Book of the Law, uh, Manna from Heaven, or Praises to God? What did God say should not depart from Joshua's mouth? And according to chapter 1 there, I'm seeing if any of the kids are giving me the finger. Sometimes they say A, B, C, or D. So I see some of them up here. It is, yeah. Don says B, number 2, B, the Book of the Law should not depart from Joshua's mouth, as we talked about in our lesson this morning. All right. We're going to cover Rahab in just a moment, but according to Joshua 2.15, what did Rahab use to let the men of Israel down through the window of her house? This is meant to be a trick question. Is it a large basket, a scarlet cord, a ladder, or a rope? Spine these kids down here. The answer to Joshua 2.15 is she let the men down in a rope. She did not let them down in the scarlet cord. That is a part of the story, but that's not according to that verse. And that's the other key, if you remember us covering uh, Bible Bowl before. Sometimes it may say something different in another verse, but that's why every time it says according to, according to, according to that particular verse. Moving to chapter 4, according to Joshua 4, 7, what were the stones to be for the children of Israel? This is one of the lessons I've been considering looking at on a Sunday morning is the stones there that are in chapter 4, an altar, a weapon, a sign, or a memorial. And the answer there is that they had 12 stones that were to be a memorial as they cross a, go across the Jordan River, not the Red Sea that we talked about this morning. That's what they've got to keep straight in their brain. We're not back in Exodus. We're in Joshua, not the Red Sea, but the Jordan River. All right. An oldie but a goodie. According to Joshua 6.3, what were the men of war told to do? To march around the city one time only, to march around the city one time a day for six days, to march around the city six times in one day, or to march around the city six times for six days. Now, once again, according to that particular verse, what is the instruction that they are given? 
It's not meant to be a trick, but we tell the kids, when you hear these, you've got to read as the guy, as the, the person at the convention is reading them out loud and start trying to cancel things out and figure out. And the correct answer here, of course, is one time a day for six days to start. There's more instructions. Those are in other questions, but that's part of it there. Now, this is the one I was excited about. Take a deep breath. According to Joshua 6, 8, and 9, in what order did Joshua command them to proceed around the city? You see some of the same things here. I'm going to have to lean down and read this one. The armed men, then the priest, then the ark, then the rear guard. The priest, the armed men, the ark, or the rear guard. The armed men, the ark, the priest, then the rear guard. Or the priest, the ark, the armed men, the rear guard. I got a couple of guesses up here. I'm seeing if any of them are going to be brave enough to give me a guess. This was long ago. We covered this probably a month ago. The answer is A. According to chapter 6, it was to be the armed men, then the priests who blew the trumpets, then the Ark of the Covenant there, and then the rear guard was behind them. All right, just a couple of more here. According to Joshua 7, 5, how many Israelite men were struck down at Ai? Do you recall that after they crossed the river there, uh, the Jordan River, at, after they do that and they actually destroy Jericho in chapter 6 with the marching around, they go to attack Ai. They take about... 3,000 men, that's one Clayton, we always make sure he gets right, 3,000 men, but they flee at first, right? They are defeated by Ai, and when they are defeated, how many men were struck down? 12, 36, 3,000, or none, and I'll tell you this, our kids are always looking for the biblical number of three or seven or something like that, that's not a choice here, uh, but the answer there is the random number of 36. I don't think that has any uh, connotation to the exact story, but 36 men were struck down when they first are defeated at the Battle of Ai. According to Joshua 8.5, what did Joshua plan to do against the people of Ai? After they're defeated, they find out that Achan has taken things that were accursed and hidden them in his tent. They bring Achan out and destroy Achan and all of his family uh, because of that sin. They go back to defeat Ai, and they have this great battle plan. Our kids have enjoyed studying this. It involves sending, let me make sure I don't give the answer here. Uh, it involves putting an ambush basically on the side or the back side of the city. Joshua tells some of the men to go hide in ambush. And then Joshua's plan was to do what? Well, his plan was to go to the city. And then when the people come out, they would basically pretend in a sense to be scared and flee. So as Joshua and the people in the front of the city turn and flee, the people of Ai follow them. They leave the city gates open, they leave the city bare, and the ambush comes in behind and takes down the city. Joshua and the people get so far away, they turn around, they see the city burning. And the people of Ai are stuck in the middle between the burning city and Joshua, and they take them down and destroy them there. And it's just a really interesting story of how this plan comes together. But Joshua and the people approach the city, and then they turn and they flee and pretend like they're kind of scared, but knowing the ambush is going to come from the back. I think there's just a couple of more here. According to Joshua 10, one of the great stories of Joshua, what did the sun do over Gibeon on the day the Amorites were defeated? Did it turn to darkness, turn to blood, stood still, or moved backward? And the answer there from Joshua chapter 10 is the sun stood still. If you know your history, that's what was covered there. And then this is the last question. According to Joshua 24, 29, how old was Joshua when he died? 90, 100, 110, or 120? Well, we mentioned it in our lesson this morning. 
You don't know? <laughs> you mentioned our lesson this morning, but Moses was 120. But at the end of Joshua, when Joshua dies, he is 110 years old. Uh, I think that's a little fun. Hopefully it gives you a little bit of encouragement. Some of you are hiding your head in shame uh, right now. Some of those you wouldn't have even known. I mean, who's going to remember that it's the armed guard and then the ark or then the priest and the ark or whatever? I don't even remember now, and I just read it. But, you know, it, some of these are hard. Uh, I showed Trey Smith earlier. Well, a couple years ago when we did uh, Exodus, I think, there were 980 slides so we're talking at least over about 400 questions or so that the kids memorized. They memorized them all but did their best to, to memorize. I think there's maybe 1,000, closer to over 1,000 this year for the book of Joshua. And so they've been working really hard, really proud of them. Um, again, we're going to cover about five more chapters here this afternoon. When we're done, you all head home. Uh, next week they'll take the test which is now online. It used to be written. They filled in the bubble just like you did at school. Uh, and we turned that in. Now it's online because of the COVID stuff. Uh, and then in about six weeks, we'll go to Nashville and, and compete with two teams and uh, hopefully have a, a good time and they've learned something from it. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention, we're still on for next week, I think. Next Sunday afternoon, uh, Jeff Archie is going to be here. Some of you remember Jeff came a few years ago to give a report on the International Gospel Hour. And so he has requested to come, and the elders agreed he could come next Sunday afternoon. So a little preview. He'll be here at our 1.30 service to give a little uh, a bit about the work and what's going on with International Gospel Hour. So we'll take a little pause there from our studies of Joshua, uh, but look forward to his presentation. But other than that, I'd like for us to keep covering some of these as we think about um, what takes place. So naturally, after we talk about Joshua chapter 1, uh, we come to Joshua chapter 2, and there's a story of a lady named Rahab. And Rahab is a person, if you have your outline in front of you from the bulletin, I entitled the lesson, Let's Talk About Rahab, because some people don't want to talk about Rahab. Some people point to Rahab and say, well, there's a problem with Rahab, and we'll get there in just a moment, uh, but it's definitely something that's worthy of our consideration. Uh, my, I don't know if I want to call him Smart Alex son, told me that there were no songs about harlots in the songbook. We couldn't sing any songs that went along with the lesson this afternoon. Uh, I almost called him out this morning because when I said that the book of the law needs to be in our mouth, He's getting a little too far with that. Uh, sometimes when his mama gets on to him, he says, let all anger be put away from you, mom. He quotes scripture to her and gives her a hard time. So we're starting to tell him maybe he needs to do a little bit less of that. Um, but I, he, we, give him, we give him a hard time about that. But yeah, he said, there's no songs about harlots. Well, that's the first point in our lesson. Who was Rahab? Let's talk about Rahab for just a moment. Rahab was a harlot. Guess what? There's no hiding from that, and there's no reason to. Rahab is a very interesting person. But we, the one thing that's known about her is that she was a harlot. Now, if you look at Scripture, there's one Scripture we're going to come to in just a few moments where I don't think it's mentioned. But in every other time, whether it be Joshua chapter 2 and verse number 1, or whether it be James, we'll cover what says about her in James in a few minutes, or Hebrews chapter 11, every time, but again, I think besides the one, she's mentioned in Scripture as Rahab the harlot, or the harlot Rahab. There's... That's just what it is. And I think there's some reasons behind that. I listened to a, a great lesson this past week in preparation by our brother Glenn Colley, uh, who did a wonderful lesson and, and pointed out a few things that really challenged me to think. And one of those is that sometimes people will say, well, you know what? She must have been a hostess. You know, that, let's, let's call her a hostess. Or maybe she was an innkeeper. But no, there's no reason to shy away that because as Glenn said, and I, I tend to agree, it was a great thought to share. But when we see that and read in scripture, Rahab, comma, the harlot. It's reminding us, of course, 
that we can know that we can be forgiven, that we maybe have a past or we have something that's done that's a part of our lives. It may have affected or been who we are for a time, but that doesn't mean that we have to stay that way or stay in a particular sin. There's no reason to, again, try to sugarcoat it or to say something else about it, but she was a harlot. We meet her in Joshua chapter 2. If you've opened your Bible, maybe again for this lesson portion uh, this afternoon, we're going to talk about what takes place here. At this point in Joshua 2, it's been almost 40 years, probably about 38 years ago, that 12 spies had been sent to the land of Canaan. We talked about that this morning. 12 spies were sent out and came back to Moses and to all Israel to report. The first time, Joshua was one of the 12 spies. This time, Joshua sends out two spies. In the first instance, Joshua was one. He sends them. In the first scenario, he spied in the land for 40 days. Again, we mentioned that. He, along with the others, spied for 40 days. In Joshua chapter 2, from what we can read here, it seems like these two men just stayed a couple of days, and they just focused on the city of Jericho. But they go in, and chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 2, verse 1, tells us that they come upon this woman, Rahab. Now, why were they in her house? And again, I listened to Brother Glenn give this, this, uh, his particular lesson. He said he didn't think that it just happened. It wasn't just like Joshua wasn't chosen out of the blue. I don't think they went along and said, you know what? She seems like a lady that we should go talk to, or we've spied out her particular house or anything. But it may have been that God told them to. He may have, they didn't go around asking, trying to, to get a survey of the people. Let's figure out who we should really meet here. No, they go to the house of Rahab and they lodge there. They just went there. It was on the wall. We're going to see in just a minute that she already had heard of God and believed in him to some degree. And of course, not only that, but because of her occupation, we might be led to believe that she could keep a secret, which is what they ask her to do. She might have been able to keep a secret because of what she did. And so uh, her occupation is that she was a harlot. Now, her sin, I don't know if that's the best way to word that, but if you have your Bible open there and you're following along, we notice that plain and simple, Rahab lied. She lied. She said in chapter 2 in verse number 4, as the people of the city come searching for these men, she tells them that she did not know where the two spies were from. Once again, no sugarcoating, she lied, plain and simple. But not only that, as they continue to kind of question her here, you look down in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2, and you notice that after she hid them on her roof, she lied again when she told the messenger of Jericho's king that she did not know where they went. Now, I just want to caution you that there is no need, again, to try to say, well, you know, it's just a white lie, or really she meant, she kind of meant this, and she could have been meaning to say it that way on part, you know, trying to turn words around. No, she lied. And if her sin is the best way to say it or not, I just kind of, this was the way, if you have your outline in front of you, that I was working through it. But she did have a problem here in that she lied. We're going to come back and talk about maybe how God felt about that and how we should feel about that. The reason I titled the lesson, let's talk about Rahab, is because some people don't want to, not only because of her occupation, but maybe because of her lying and how people will try to twist that into situational things that we might not want to talk about. But that's, that doesn't have to be the case because we can understand exactly what was taking place here 
with her. All right, I think we're down to about number three here. Let's talk about her lineage for a moment. If you want to turn over to Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 5, you'll notice that she's mentioned in the New Testament in the very beginning. And that is in the lineage, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, I know this is probably one of those passages that you're like, your daily Bible reading, you just kind of want to skip right over, right? Don't know all the names, don't remember them all, don't want to get uh, caught up in it. But this might be a place that a person would take you to in order to say that there's something wrong here. There is a harlot who lied in the lineage of Jesus Christ. Verse 5 says that Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. And, of course, it continue all, continues on through there. You may notice in verse number 5 that there are some names that you recognize. Because Boaz begat, begot Obed by Ruth, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot, verse 6, David the king. That's right. Coming from the lineage of Christ is, and through that, is Rahab here. Now, it's interesting. Uh, I heard in, in doing some preparation from this lesson, this is the first time I'd ever heard it, but someone has been suggested in the past that this Salmon there listed in verse 5 may have been one of the two spies. There's no way of knowing that for sure. It's not necessarily worth arguing about. It is kind of interesting if you like to think about a story in a sense and the way it flows that maybe as she is taken out of the city, her and her family who were in the house with her there, as they are led, are led away, in Joshua chapter 6 there, uh, that maybe she did stay with the children of Israel. We see that she continued with them, uh, and I think it's there at, and at the end of chapter 6, chapter 6 verse 25, after Jericho fell, she lived among the Israelites. So is it possible that because of this connection with one of the two spies that they became married and then was a part of this? Possibly, again, not, not going to say for sure, um, but we do know that one reason we need to talk about Rahab is because she is listed here in Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 5. Also, if you have your Bible, turn over to James chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 11. They may only be a page or two in your Bible. If you're making notes, you'll want to write down Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 31. Hebrews eleven thirty-one. 31. And then James 2.25, Hebrews 11.31, James 2.25, if you like to make notes. One comparison that's made of Rahab, because some people would have you believe that she should have just been someone that the world forgot, that God should not have mentioned ever again because there might have been some danger there or something like that. But she is one of two people who are mentioned in both Hebrews 11 and James 2. And the other one is Abraham. Now, if we're making a list, we say Father Abraham, we say David, we talk about Paul, we talk about great men and people of the Bible, men and women of the Bible, we're not going to say Abraham and then Rahab together, right? But yet they're both listed in, in both of these places. Hebrews 11.31 uh, says, By faith the heart of Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And, of course, we know that Hebrews 11 talks about Abraham as well, back in Hebrews 11 in verse number 8 or so. Then James 2.25, as it's talking about faith without works is dead, that's what James is talking about here. I want to come back to that for our last point. But he begins in verse 14 of James 2 talking about Abraham, Abraham's faith and Abraham's works. And he concludes that section with saying, verse 25, Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? 
It is, as we just read in Hebrews 11, by faith. It's by faith that she received the spies with peace. And the context there in Hebrews chapter 11, in this hall of fame of faith, or hall of fame of the faithful, the context there would probably imply that what she did pleased the Lord. She received the spies with faith. Maybe not everything else. We'll come back to that in a minute. But what she did with the spies here, receiving them with peace, pleased the Lord. According to James 2, she was justified by works in the manner that she dealt with the spies. And if you want to, we can go back to Joshua 2 for just a moment. And we can notice, I didn't point this out a few moments ago, but you see in Joshua 2 that she begins, well really it's down in about verse 9. Now before the lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she makes this these comments, if you will, this kind of small speech. And what does she say? What can we learn about what she knew ahead of time? She says in verse 9, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, I love this phrase I've told our kids, our hearts melted. Not that it's a great thing, they're afraid, but it is just an interesting way of saying it. Our hearts melted, neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And then she goes on, they begin to make this deal, I guess, if you will, for lack of a better phrase, of what would happen. She asked for protection. They offer that in return for her silence in a way that they wouldn't tell anything. They say, if you tell anyone, the deal will be off. But she basically says, we know who you are. We are terrified of you. Our hearts melt. We are faint-hearted when we know what you've done so far. And she even says with emphasis there, the Lord has given you the land. Because of the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She knew who God was. She had some belief ahead of time. And so that's interesting to consider then that as they come to her and ask for this protection and make this deal with her, that she is familiar. And I think that's what Hebrews chapter 11 is getting at there, that the rest of those folks who were destroyed, they did not believe, but she believed. She had some good in her there. Which leads us to this next point, her approval. Again, this may not be the best way of saying it, but the problem that comes up, and I found a great article by our brother Wayne Jackson as well. We often refer you to his material, The Christian Courier. Uh, there's an article on his website, Does the Bible Sanction Rahab's Lying? That's the question. And, of course, the answer is, let me give you a few things here just real quick. Uh, uh, number one, brother Jackson points out, as we think about this idea of sanctioning her line or not, as we've already said, number one, nobody would even know about this if it weren't for the Bible, right? We wouldn't even have a record of it if it weren't for the Bible telling us this. So it's kind of a, a testament to the Word of God that it makes no effort to conceal what Rahab did here. Right? I mean, if, if I were writing it, right, if we're writing the history of our family or something, we might just leave out the occupation. Or we might just skip the part about the lying. You know, we'll just say she helped us. Like, we'll just leave it like that, right? It's not really lying. 
But no, the Bible makes it clear exactly what took place, and that can be of comfort to us. But we only know about it if the Bible tells us. Number two, Rahab's lie is never condoned anywhere in the Bible text. The New Testament writers certainly do not claim that she was justified by her lying, by her misrepresentation of the facts regarding these two men. But then number three, the Bible is very clear that lying is condemned. Does the Bible sanction Rahab's lying? I think the answer is no. And again, whether her approval is the best way to say it is not. But no, she's not approved because of her lying because the Bible uniformly condemns lying. But you know what's interesting as well with that? Brother Jackson points out in his article. The fact is, is that apart from God, apart from divine re- revelation, how can a person say that lying is wrong anyway, right? I mean, what atheist is going to say, well, lying's wrong. Well, how do you know that? I mean, why would lying be wrong unless God, the authority, God in heaven has made this clear to us. Atheists cannot condemn lying as an evil that's universally wrong. But it's because of God that we know that lying is wrong. Instead, is she approved for her lying? No. But she is approved in spite of a personal character flaw. Have you ever met or studied about David? Have you ever met or studied about Peter? You see, what happens here is a lot of people want to take Rahab and hold her up as this person uh, that did something wrong that the Bible glorifies, and it's a problem for Christians. But have you ever met anybody else in the Bible that did good things but also had a character flaw that messed up? Did God continue to use those people like David, like Peter, to carry out his will even though they did some bad things, but also did lots of good things? Absolutely. He used her, God used her, despite what she did, in the same way that he used other people that transgressed his law. And I want you to understand that when it comes to this idea of did God uh, uh, sanction her line or approve Rahab's line? No, she wasn't approved for that. She was approved. She was justified by her works and how she dealt with the, the spies. And again, we see some belief there in the same way that then caused her to do the right thing by the spies. So what's the lesson? If we could take one lesson for us from Rahab this afternoon, what would it be? I would suggest that it would be this, that faith is expressed by action. I heard it in Brother Glenn's lesson. It mentions it in Brother Jackson's article and other things that I was reading. Every person says when we go to Hebrews chapter 11, we go to James chapter 2, and we read about Rahab, we combine those thoughts together. The one thing we see is that her faith caused her to take action. And it's a perfect segue for us as we even think about our lives. Is our faith causing us to do something? Or is it causing us to simply sit back and wait to sit back and just see what happens? Or causing us to take action by attending services, by doing good works, by visiting people, by, by all the things that we can and should be doing? What is it for us? And how are we acting? Even as we talked about in our lesson this morning, it's one thing to have God's word and law, the book of the law in our mind and in our mouth. But is it showing forth in action? It did with Joshua. And it even did with here with Rahab. Her lesson for us is that we need to allow our belief to cause us to do certain things. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? 
then you should be willing to obey his commands. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Then it's going to show forth in how you treat your brothers and sisters, how you treat people who are oppressed or those who are less fortunate. All these things, the list could go on and on. But our faith is shown in what we do. And so that leads us to our invitation, an invitation song this afternoon. If you were here this afternoon and you're not a child of God, but you believe, we know lots of people who believe, will you allow it to cause action in your life? Maybe you need to repent of your sins, confess Jesus as Lord, and then be baptized for the remission of your sins so that the Lord can add you to his church. Faith, belief, showing forth in action. Maybe you've struggled to remain faithful. We're told to be faithful unto death and to continue to walk in the light as he is in the light. But sometimes we just say, well, you know what? I believe in God. I believe in Jesus. That's enough for me. God knows it. People say things like, well, God knows my heart. He does. That's for sure. The Bible's clear about that. But is your faith, your belief, causing you to, to do something for the Lord? Maybe you've done something, not for God, but in the way of sin, something that's against God's will. We would love to pray with you and for you even this afternoon as well. We're thankful for the opportunity that makes its way here to us now, that we can encourage you with the words of this song, that you can become a Christian or come back to him, even now as we stand together and as we sing.